For its size, it does produce a lot of fish. So fishing became a really large industry in this region. Sardines were actually a staple. So it is possible that the two small fish that Jesus multiplied could have been sardines. Imagine that. Now they also caught a lot of other fish called mushed, which today is known as St. Peter's fish. Now this fish has a long dorsal fin and can be up to one and a half feet long. Now it would have been amazing to see Jesus perform this miracle by the sea. So there you go, a little bit about the Sea of Galilee. And that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, we love you so much and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this whole Christmas season that just reminds us that we matter to you. That in your love you looked down on this world and because you wanted to save it, you sent us your son. You sent us your son because you loved us. Because we matter. Because you still care. You sent us Jesus so that we could begin again. So that we could be forgiven. So that we can start new. So that we can be with you forever in heaven. So we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for this whole season of Christmas that gives us pause to remind ourselves of just how special you are. And so we thank you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We find ourselves in the Gospel of John tonight, chapter 6, and as Mike talked about, we're going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000. So I'll just begin in verse 1. It says, after Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, a couple of things just as we get started in the, in, in the lesson this morning. One is there's a huge crowd now. This is a couple months, maybe even six months past the last time we got together in chapter 5. He's been doing miracles. He's been healing people. People are starting to take notice, and they've taken so much notice that wherever Jesus went now, he had these huge crowds with him. And they followed him wherever he went, hoping he would do a miracle, hoping he would do some healing, hoping they would see something that just kind of blew their mind a little bit, right? The other thing I want you to think of as we're going through this is I want to ask you this question. How big is your Jesus? Kind of a weird question, right? But I had a professor in seminary, and one of the things that he, he was kind of a thinker, and he kind of like this sometimes, and just, you know, just very into his head. And, but he'd say, how big will you let your Jesus be for you? How big is your Jesus? I ask that because I think we all kind of limit God in different ways. By our trust level, by the things that we seek him for, by our understanding of who he is. And often we put Jesus in a little box, and we say, we'll trust you for our forgiveness, and we'll trust you for our salvation, but I got the bills, and, and I got my kids, and, and I'll do worry about my habits, and I'll worry about this over here, but, but I got you for these things, Jesus. And so when it comes to life, we trust him for our forgiveness, and we trust that when we die, we'll go to heaven, but everything else we stress about, and we worry about, and we have anxiety about, because we don't trust the other promises that he gives us in scripture. In a way, that's what the disciples were doing, right? They were trying to understand who this Jesus was, and they put him in a box. So far, he was this amazing healer. They believed he was the Messiah, a Messiah that could heal, right? I mean, that's where he was. And so throughout the ministry of Jesus for these three years, he would blow out one side after another side after another side, trying to show his disciples that he was more than they were letting him be. And so this is another story of Jesus kind of blowing out the sides of that box of who God is for us. And as we go through this, I want you to think about how big do you let God be for you? And the way that you see that is, what do you worry? What do you stress? What do you fear? What do you have anxiety over in your life? And the question is, why? What aren't you trusting? What promise aren't you just grabbing hold of? What are you stressed about? 
God says, if you trust me, I will give you peace. And so, so often we can identify those things that we just are holding back from God right now because we want to be in charge, because we think we're going to do a better job or whatever the deal is, because we can't quite trust him. And in those areas, we're not letting him be God. And so as we go through this text, think about those things. Okay, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the, on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and that's an important thing. So Jesus is going to do this miracle of feeding the 5,000, and what do you know about the Passover? Passover is when the angel of death right passed over the nation of Egypt. All those that didn't have blood on the door, right, were wiped out. All those that had the blood on the door were safe, were rescued. And the other part of the Passover then is going out into the desert wilderness for 40 years, kind of doing their thing because they rebelled about going right into the promised land. So one of the biggest miracles as they're going through the desert for 40 years was what? Feeding this two million group of people for 40 years. And what was the biggest miracle he did in that regard? The manna, right? So it's Passover time and they've just been reading through all this stuff, going through Exodus again and again. We've been through it already the one time, but, but just going through the whole narrative, the whole story. So this is fresh on their minds. So the new, the, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are you to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now again, they just studied all this material from Exodus. And what, what did God tell Moses to do at one point? To feed the people. And Moses said, even if all the cattle and all the world were like gathered up and all the fish from the sea, I could I feed all these people? And God says, feed the people. So Jesus asked the same question, putting again in their minds something they had just read in their books, read in their studied as they were going through the Passover. He said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, kind of like Moses did, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread to, for each of them to get just a little bit. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? You kind of give Andrew some credit here though, right? Well, I know a kid, right? He's got five loaves. And, and five loaves of barley, that was like the poor people's food. They were just like this big, right? Little barley loaves of bread. The fish would have been either the sardines Mike was talking about or, or some other small fish. So they weren't, you know, they were just barely enough to feed the kid, right? And maybe his family that was there. But God bless Andrew, he brings him forward and said, this kid's got some, I saw him, right? Before he, before he hid it from me, like everybody else did, I saw him and he's coming forward to offer it up. So you almost imagine that this kid heard about it and he was saying, here you go, can you use this? And then he's like, but I don't know what you're gonna do with that. And so Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So you assume that there was probably another 5,000 or so women, maybe even some kids, which gives that 15,000 mark that so many people think it might have been. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their full, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So this kid comes forward with these loaves. Jesus blesses it. And somehow, someway, these five loaves, I don't know if he breaks them in the thing and they just keep on multiplying, and, but it's just passed around. One person after another person after another person takes as much as he can get, much as he can eat, so that they're all satisfied, so that they're all full. 
everybody recognizes it as a miracle. I mean, there's, there's up to 15,000 people there. There's no way there's enough food, and yet somehow God has multiplied it over and over and over and over again. Again, remember it's Passover. They had just read about the manna. They maybe even hearken back to Elisha's miracle with, with, the, with the priests of God where, where he multiplied the food. Again, barley loaves. And all this was kind of coming to the front. And just as a, a way to kind of make sure the disciples were getting what was happening, he says, collect the leftovers. And it wasn't like he, they were collecting the half-eaten stuff. They, I mean, he said, like, collecting the stuff that people hadn't eaten yet and putting it away so they had, you know, food for later on in their trip or whatever the deal is. Or maybe they, they donated it or who knows. But they gathered 12 loaves. And you notice how many baskets they collected? Twelve. One for each of the disciples. So they gathered it up and filled 12 baskets filled with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is the Moses that was promised. This is the one we've been waiting for. There was also a tradition in the Jewish, I guess amongst the Jewish people at this time, that when the Messiah would come again, they kind of believed that the manna was being collected in a storehouse in heaven, and that when the Messiah would come, he'd kind of unlock it, and the manna would again come down to feed the people. This is the one they had been waiting for. He had just fed 15,000 people. It was extraordinary. Perceiving then that they were were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You have to understand the people were under Roman control. They were under Herodian or Herod's control. They were the poorest of the poor in this area of Galilee. Jesus had just done something extraordinary. They wanted their freedom. They wanted to be free from Romans' rule and all their issues. They, they wanted to just get back to be God's people. They had heard for so long about the Messiah. They wanted them to set up his kingdom now so that they could be his people, so that they would no longer have to be hungry anymore, so that they would no longer have to serve the Romans and give every last tax penny to them, so that they could just be free. And they saw in Jesus, one, by the way, John the Baptist had prophesied about, one that some of them had heard God's voice from, seen the dove come down from heaven with, known that many were already claiming him to be the Messiah, now he was doing this. Who better to lead them? Who better to be the king but the Messiah? Let them get him started, they were thinking. So in the middle of their confusion, I'll just ask you, who is Jesus to you? I say that because I say, how big is your Jesus? And so again, this is one of those things that just says, I'm not just a healer. I could make bread appear out of nothing if I want. I could feed the whole world if I want. There's nothing that I cannot do. Are you getting that? But who is your Jesus? I ask that because sometimes I think we get a little confused, especially today. Some of us see him as a healer because we want healing right now. We just found out we had cancer. We just found out that we're going to have to get surgery again. We just want him to heal. We want him to take away our pain. We want him to do it now. Some of us see him as a comforter. Just been through this or that, lost a loved one, and we want him to come in comfort now. We want him to give us a peace so that we can restart living life again, so that we can restart going again. Some of us see him as an avenger. He promises, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and we want him to do that now because... The world's getting weirder. And we were just wronged, or we were just offended. 
Some of us see him as a gift giver. Remember Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. And we come to him with just about everything that we've got, wanting him to answer right then and right there, just the way we prayed. Some of us see him as the protector, scared out of our minds, and we just need him to buffet us up with strength, buffet us up with protection, put that hedge around us big time because we're afraid of where we're going. And all these things are true of God, right? But Jesus is all about what? Saving us. He's all about our spiritual selves, not our physical stuff. He's about saving us from our sin, forgiving us, reconciling us with God so that we can go to heaven. That's ultimately who Jesus is. And I think that's largely been forgotten in our culture today. This isn't the first time I've said that, but when we started losing this idea of sin in our world, we started losing this sense of why we needed Jesus. And if we don't need him to forgive our sins so that we can be with him in heaven, then I don't know, I can take or leave, right, his, his moral sayings depending on how I'm living my life. And I can take or leave his comfort because, I don't know, most of the time I got it together. And it's only in those times of crisis and those times of need that maybe I just ultimately still need Jesus because I've forgotten of why I need him in the first place. Because if we truly remembered that he came to forgive us from our sins, we would never miss a Sunday. Because every week we blow it and every week we fall short and every week we're doing this or that that complicates our life. Every week, every day, every part of the day, right? We're doing stuff that we need to be forgiven for. If we truly believed that, we would be in prayer constantly. If we truly understood that, we would be in devotion every day so that we could rehear the words of comfort. You're forgiven. I got you. I love you. You're mine. And those are words that set you free from being encumbered by the past. And those are words that set you free to experience the peace and the joy and the hope that he has in store. And so while all these other things are also true of God, and I don't want to stop you from going to God for those things because we need them, the ultimate reason we need Jesus is to be forgiven so that we can be reconciled, so that we can be with him forever in heaven. And you'll see that this is what Jesus is trying to get across as the narrative progresses. Yeah, I can feed people. I, and yes, I can heal people. And yes, I can comfort people. But what you truly need is the forgiveness I'm going to win for you on the cross. The crowd was missing this a little bit. The disciples, to be fair, were missing this a little bit. They wanted to make him king. Jesus knew that's not why he came, so he goes up to the mountain to pray. And it's kind of a, an awesome escape. He's sending the disciples out by boat. He's going to go up on the mountain. They're not going to know where he is in a little bit, but that's what he's doing. He's trying to, to get out of the situation. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus on the sea coming near the boat, and they were frightened. 
I don't know how many of you grew up on a lake or anything similar to that. When I was little, I grew up uh, on Lake Leelanau, and I didn't, my grandparents did, but we'd go there every summer. And when I was about six, my grandpa said, okay, gave me the keys to the motorboat, 10 horsepower engine. You know, we were just kind of, but I was able to go up and down the river, and I wasn't supposed to go in the, the lake part, you know, the lake is probably a strong word for it, but you know, the, the lake part. But I, I thought, you know, I got this down. And so one time it was kind of stormy, and I thought, well, how bad could the waves be? right? I mean, this is a little lake. I mean, it's probably going to be a lot of fun. So I started across to my uncle's house. It was across the lake. And I got about halfway there, and I was scared out of my mind. And my grandpa taught me how to do it, right? How to cross the the wake at just the right angle so that you don't capsize to make some headway. But the waves were huge, and the wind was blowing, and it was pouring rain. And I'm hearing, "Mm," you know, (laughs) I'm and I'm thinking, I just need to get to shore. I got to find some place to get to shore. And I was terrified. I was terrified that I wasn't going to make it. I was terrified that I could. And all of a sudden, out of the clearing, I saw the little mouth to the river because I turned around and, and I started making my way toward it. And I got to the river. I'm like, I'm never going out there again when it's rough, you know. These were seasoned fishermen. But like Mike said, it, the, the area, especially on the south of the Sea of Galilee, is like a wind tunnel. And every evening, the wind would just kick up something fierce, and it would cause these huge storms, these, these huge storms. And the fishermen, they knew this, and so they're always watching for it. But sometimes they would get caught out there, especially if they hadn't caught any fish for a while or if they're trying to row across the river to flee some situation, you know, or across the, the sea to get to a, a different place. But they were terrified, and they were doing all the things that they had learned all through the years. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that situation, they see Jesus walking up. And it just reminded me, when I was on that little lake, I was thinking, I would have loved if I saw my grandpa walking up. Sweet, can you take over? Because this is freaking me out, you know. Jesus starts walking up. But he was walking on the water. And all of a sudden, their fear of the storm went away. And their fear of Jesus became all too real. He's walking on the water. Nobody walks on the water. And again, Jesus is blowing out another one of those walls, right? I can heal. I can feed. I can do the miraculous. I can walk on water. See, in the other Gospels, I can still storms. I can calm seas. There's nothing that I cannot do. I think so often we forget that as we're going through life. And there's a lot of other reasons, right, that I just listed that we go to God for. We should be going to him for everything. Yes, forgiveness is the primary chief thing, but we should be going to him for everything because there's nothing that he can't do. And if we would trust him and put stuff into his hands, we could experience peace in the midst of those storms. Trusting that somehow, someway, God's got us. And he's just calling us to do our best to get through the moment, to get through the situation, to keep on pushing forward, to keep on going, to keep on trying. And somehow, someway, he'll see us to the other side. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they're glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Another miracle. All of a sudden, they were there, right? All of a sudden, the mouth of the river opens up, and they're They're safe. I don't know what you're struggling with right now. I don't know what you're afraid of or what you're stressing over or what you're worried about. But I want you to hear Jesus in the midst of that say, don't be afraid. I love you. I've got you. You're mine. And I tell you, if you just embrace that and trust that, there's a peace that overwhelms you. 
God's got me in the midst of this stuff. God's got this figured out even when I don't. I don't have to be afraid because he's with me. It doesn't mean there won't be trials and it doesn't mean there won't be struggles. It just means that he will see you through to the other side. And the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there was, had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias and came near that place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, and I'm sure they made this huge surge, nor his disciples, they himself got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And they were seeking Jesus because why? They wanted to make him what? King. They believed him to be the Messiah, at least their version of the Messiah, that he was going to reign, that he was going to free them from the tyranny of Rome, that he was going to do something huge, something big that all the prophecies had predicted. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw the signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It's an interesting thing. This is not a savvy politician, Jesus, right? He's not trying to, to bring as many people to him as possible at this point. He's trying to correct some thinking. They just ate to their full. Again, some of the poorest people surround, were, were lived around this area of Galilee. They saw a chance to maybe eat for the rest of their lives, to be freed. They saw in Jesus a hope that they hadn't had in a long time. And they were following him because of that. Not the savior of the world, but the savior of the moment. Not the savior from sin, but the savior from difficulty or hardship or whatever. Again, sometimes I think we get that little confused on why we follow Jesus. First and foremost, it's got to be about the forgiveness. And then everything after that, right? So truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the woman at the well, right? And he says, I am the living water. And if you believe in the living water, I will well up inside of you and give you eternal life, right? It's just believing in that. So he is the living water. He's going to use the whole food analogy now and say, I'm the bread of life. Same kind of thing. If you believe in the bread of life, you have life. I am the bread of life that will give you eternal life. Please believe in me. That's what he's crying out. That's what he's saying all the way through this narrative. And so he says, do not labor for the food that perishes, for the things of this world, right? But for the food that endures to eternal life, the thing that makes a difference toward eternity, which the Son of Man will give to you. I'll give you an example. I, I think so often we get so wrapped up in relationships that we forget what the main goal is with our relationships. But, well, for example, we have somebody in our life that we love, that we care about, but they don't believe in God. And instead of making that relationship weird in any way, we just don't ever bring up God. And so we sit on the sidelines as we watch this boat, the Titanic, take our friends down to hell when all we had to do is say, jump off, follow me, tell them about Jesus in some way. I promise you, if you start sharing God's word in a way, not to beat him in an argument, but to share God's word in a way that they hear, you'd be amazed at what happens. But if you care about this, friend, what is true love? True love just isn't loving them on this earth, right? If you truly love somebody, don't you want them in heaven? Yeah? 
And if you want them in heaven, do you think it's just magically going to happen? Or do you feel like he's called you because they're in your life to start sowing some seeds? And I promise you, because they know that you go to church, because they know that you love Jesus, it's not disingenuous for you in any way to bring up God. To share with them about a Bible study that you were at, or to share with them a song that you just think is meaningful, to share how God was speaking to you in a message or whatever, it's not disingenuous at all. It's disingenuous for you not to. It's like you know this awesome restaurant, and it is fabulous, and you go there as often as you can, but you don't want anybody else to go because you don't want it to be crowded, right? We can take as many as possible in heaven, right? He wants as many up there as possible. Share with them this good news that you got. And if you're sharing it in a way that they hear and not to win the argument, you'd be amazed at what they let you say over time. I keep bringing up my buddy Mike, but I've shared literally everything with him. And we're still best friends. I'm 50 years old. He's 50 years old. I've been sharing this stuff since I was in high school with him because I want him to be in heaven. Shows you how good I am. Nothing's getting through, right? But I'm going to keep trying because I want him in heaven. He said to me one time, he goes, you're going to get like a lot of extra credit points if you get me to heaven one day. And I said, no, that's not it, man. If I get you to heaven, I win because I get to spend my eternity with you. That's what I want. That's why I want you there. I don't know how I got on that, but we're going forward here. Um, do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. Oh, that's how. So which the Son of Man will give to you. And so he's saying, if you believe that I'm a Son of Man, I can give you things that end up in eternal life. For on him God the Father has set his seal. How did God set his seal on Jesus? Spirit of the Lord came down upon him. Voice from heaven spoke to him. John the Baptist proclaimed him as the Messiah. The miracles themselves displayed his power. Over and over and over again, God gives, I don't know, a list of credentials on how and why Jesus is the Messiah. He gives witnesses all over the place. God himself, John the Baptist, the miracles, the dove. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. For on him the God the Father set his seal. And then he said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent you. I love that. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, I just want you to believe. It's like my buddy, he says, he was talking to some friends after he became a believer, and they said, are you going to heaven now? And he says, I hope so. I think I've done enough. And then he came back and he told me, I said, oh, buddy, you haven't done anywhere near enough. I mean, not even close. And you could just see his, his face kind of fell a little bit. I said, I said, but the good news is that Jesus has, right? It's not about you. It's about Jesus, and if you put you, your faith in this big God that we have, if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you know what he does? He forgives all your sin. And here's the deal. If you put your faith and your trust in this big Jesus who's forgiven you, saved you from all your sin so that you get to be within heaven, why on earth would you go back to the sin in the first place, in the second place, right? Why would you go back to something you know is not good for you? Why would you go back to something that you know upsets him? Why would you go back to something that you know clearly is not the best for your life? Y'all can give an answer of why, right? But we fall short. We get distorted in our thinking. Satan confuses us, and we mess up again and again and again, and so we go back to Jesus, and he says, I love you, I forgive you, my child. 
And it gives us freedom to move forward. And it gives us freedom not to be encumbered by the past anymore. And it gives us freedom to again rejoice in who he is. And then we blow it again and we go back to Jesus saying, God, please forgive me. And that's why we should keep short accounts. So that we live in the freedom and not in the, and not in the guilt. Jesus answered him, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has, he has sent. So they said to him, what, then what sign do you do that we may see you and believe? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread of heaven. So they're saying, show us a miracle, God, or Jesus, and we'll believe you. Like just yesterday, I fed 15,000 people, right? I've probably been healing a couple people since I've been here. Ask the disciples, I just walked across the water. What, what are you struggling with here? He did miracle after miracle after miracle in front of tons and tons of witnesses, yet they asked for another miracle. And specifically, what miracle? We want to see manna from heaven. If you're the Messiah, all the teachers have told us, you're going to open up the storehouses of that manna and it's going to rain down so that we could eat forever. Is that what you're talking about, Jesus? Show us that and we'll believe in you. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. Again, trying to bring them back to him. Off the bread, onto him. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's saying, the true bread is one who has been in heaven, has come down from heaven to save the world. In him you will find eternal life. He's the true bread. You know, over and over, even the... Um, Old Testament scholars, and, and, and even in the readings that you do as a result of them, even back in Jesus' time, all equated the bread of life to being in the Word, right? That the Word sustains us, that the Word nourishes us, that the Word creates faith in us, right? Through the Holy Spirit. And the more you're in the, more, you're in the Word, the more you get to know Jesus, and it just fills you up and wells within, and because it testifies to the one who saves. Remember, John starts the whole book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is saying, whether you think of it as the word or you think of it as the bread, I am the bread of life that gives you life. Focus on me and not the stuff. Focus on being in heaven and not on this earth. If you start, and I'll just say it this way, if you start playing for heaven, it changes your perspective on a great many things, doesn't it? It changes your perspective on wealth. It changes your perspective on relationships. It changes your perspective on who you surround yourself with, on what you spend your time doing, on how upset you get over some of the difficulties of life. Because you know it's not just about the here and the now, it's about the eternity that you're going to have forever and ever and ever with God in heaven. It just changes things. I, I was here with my, my Wednesday night Bible study, at least this was a couple years ago when I first said it, and they were kind of all like, what are you doing? I said, I said, I can't wait to go to heaven. And they all looked at me kind of strange, like, what are you talking about? And I said, I, I can't wait to go. Jesus talks about it as my prize, as my reward, right? It, it's supposed to be the most incredible place I've ever experienced in my whole life. I'm going to see everybody who loves the Lord there, most of you guys, all of you guys. Um, but I'm going to get to see you guys all for eternity, I'm not going to lose out on a relationship, except for the blip of time that this earth is. I'm not going to lose out on reward or on happiness or on joy. I just get to experience it quicker. 
I'm not going to rush usher it in. Paul says to die is gain, but to live is Christ. And as long as he's got me living, I know he's got purpose for me, right? You should also know that. God doesn't give you license to short circuit it. As long as you're here, he's got purpose for you. But when you die, truly, it is the greatest day of your life. Not anybody else's. They're all sad. But it's the greatest day of your life because you finally enter into your paradise. We should all be playing for heaven. It gives us a perspective, a healthy perspective of life to proceed and to move forward. To understand that grief even, which is one of the hard ones, right, is only momentary for those that love the Lord. That it's not goodbye, but it's I'll see you soon. And I'll see you forever. There's a lady I know, she's lost her child when she was, I don't know, six years old. This lady's now in her 70s and she can't move past it. She keeps asking why. Why? And I think any of us would be asking why and we'd have to hold that off for God until we got in heaven. But I tried to take her out of that to, to show her the eternity. I said, I said, I don't know. I said, maybe God took her home because he wanted to make sure she was in heaven for eternity. Maybe he foresaw something that would come into her life that somehow would shift her face. She wouldn't be the only kid that strays away, right? And he just wanted to make sure, for whatever reason, she had accomplished her purpose and he wanted to take her home for safekeeping. Kind of like when you're playing tag and you finally get somebody home, they don't come off base, <laughs> they stay there, right? You finally got somebody home and he's just keeping her there. She's just waiting for you to get there. And you'll get to spend your eternity with her. Yeah, you missed out on probably the last 30, 40 years, right? Or 50, 60 years or whatever. But your eternity, you're going to get to hang out with your daughter. If for no other reason, that's why you should rejoice in your God. That even though at that moment she wasn't safe, God's been keeping her safe ever since. It just changes your perspective on so many things and allows you to live life, even this life, with a healthier perspective, with more joy, with more peace, with more hope as you go through life. And Jesus again and again is trying to just root people out of the now and then into the eternity. See me as one that can help you get there. See me as your savior. The one who came because I love you to make sure you're with me forever. We'll pick up next week with verse 35. Well, did I go to 35? I don't know. I'm going to read it a little bit and then we'll finish. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I wish the narrative ended there because you'd think, man, they got it, right? They want Jesus. It's all said. He's converted all of them. They're all going to be there. But the narrative will go on and we'll pick up next week. Let me pray. God, we love you so much and we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for the way that he continues to call out to us. He continues not just to call out to his disciples so that they understand who he is, that he's God, that he's your son, that he can do all things, that there's nothing that's impossible for him, but also as one who came to seek and to save the lost, which we are so that he could save us, so that we could be with him forever. And Father, allow us to live in that idea of eternity because it gives us a healthy perspective on life. It allows us to give it the strength to overcome the grief in our life. It allows us the perspective to deal with the problems in our life. It allows us to see the wealth and the relationships for what they are, and it helps us prioritize the things that we're gonna see and experience for eternity, like the relationships like our family and our friends and the people that we care about. And may that give us an urgency, Lord, to share with them 
so they can be with us there too. Father, we love you so much, and we pray that you just be with us, especially this Christmas season. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Guys, go with this blessing tonight. May our Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious always unto you. And may he look upon you now with his favor and grant you forever his peace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Please rise.